Then the previous part of this revelation, it has largely dealt with God's judgment on a wicked world. Now, the theme changes to some extent because it reveals God's blessed plan for his own. This chapter introduces the second coming of Christ, which is the major event of the entire book. Now, the second coming of Christ actually happens in two stages. The first stage is the rapture of the church, where he will come in the clouds. He will not come to the earth. Because the scripture tells us clearly that we will be called to meet him in the air. The second stage is where he will come to the earth. So when you think of the second coming of Christ, it's like a two-stage event. The first stage of it's prior to the tribulation. The second stage of it at the end of the tribulation. So when we talk here about his coming, the second coming of Christ, we're talking of his coming to the earth. And it is indeed a major theme in the entire book. All the preceding that precedes chapter 19 is by way of introduction. The second coming itself is presented in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And the chapters that follow, 20, chapter 20 and chapter through chapter 22, are the aftermath of the second coming of Christ or the events that will happen because Jesus has come. Through all this book, one thing we see and one thing we want to be remembering is that God's in control. I mean, the world's going crazy. There's all kinds of havoc taking place. And it seems like, what in the world is going on? Where's God in all this? Well, he's in control of it. It's part of his plan. He has given mankind an opportunity to repent time after time. He's been very long-suffering with mankind. And those who go into the tribulation period will have had an opportunity but rejected it. There will be people born in that time period that will again have an opportunity to be saved. But it's a, a, a horrific time, but a time in which we see the power of God at work, controlling the events of life, of the world, of the devil, and of all he's trying to do. I mean, God's already told Satan what he's going to be doing, and how it's going to turn out. So it's not like Satan's going to come up with this enormous plan all on his own. God already knows his plan and has already laid out what his plan's going to be. And yet in all that, Satan chooses to believe that he can conquer God, and it will bring about his ultimate eternal damnation. So as we look at this chapter, we see the events that are going to come after Christ's return to the earth. The re revelation of chapter 19 follows the preceding chapter in order of revelation to John as well as chronologically. So the events of chapter 18 happen, then we go into chapter 19, but that is also the chronological order of how the events are going to unfold. And as you can see, that information I just read to you is from a quote. First of all, we see in verses 1 to 3, the alleluias of the saints in heaven. Verse 1, chapter 19, and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments 
for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath, hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. So the response of this Alleluia is to what happened in chapter 18, verse 20, where God destroys Babylon. The destruction of Babylon marks the end of the Great Tribulation. Also, the destruction of Babylon marks the defeat of the Antichrist. And the destruction of Babylon precedes the return of Christ to the earth to establish his millennial throne and reign. So this is a time of praise for what God has done in removing this wicked Babylon. Whether these people totally comprehend what this really means, I don't know, but they're just praising God that, that this element is gone. The influence is gone. The power has been destroyed. It's like you're hoping for a good outcome in an election. And you're hoping for your candidate to win because you believe if your candidate can get into office, they can turn things around or they can do much better than one that's serving at the present time. So when your candidate gets into office, you're excited because finally the other candidate's been defeated. But you really aren't sure what's going to happen in the next four years. You don't know what your candidate will face, what he'll do, what he'll have to deal with. And that could be the case here, but these people are rejoicing that this enemy is out of the way. The word hallelujah is hallelujah, which means praise ye the Lord. So these people are praising the Lord for salvation, which is deliverance and preservation. They're praising the Lord and giving him glory or very high opinion or estimation. I mean, these people are not holding back in their praise and worship of God. Because of his deliverance, because of his preservation, they're giving him this high opinion and esteem, honor, great respect and admiration because of his power, his strength and his might. Notice he says, much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And then verse 2 to 3 by point B, you might want to put verse 1. By point C, put verse 2 to 3. God's judgments are declared to be true and righteous in verses 2 and in verse number 3. God's judgments are always, they are always true and righteous. They may not be what we thought they ought to be, but they are always true and righteous. They are genuine, they are real, they are unconcealed when they're true. They are righteous, they're without prejudice and partiality. I mean, God has a way of thinking, and his thinking is always right. He's never unfair to people. He's always right in the way he deals with people. And so we find here 
that his judgments are true, genuine, real, unconcealed, and they are righteous. They are without prejudice and partiality. In verse 4, we see the alleluia of the 24 elders and the four beasts which are around the throne of God. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, alleluia. And there's verse five and six. And the voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So we see the third Alleluia of the great multitude. Here we see that there are innumerable people ready to worship God. Innumerable people that are there in the presence of God, on God's side, on God's team, and are rejoicing at what they see their leader do. Take courage in the fact that God has his own. We're not alone. We're not the only ones fighting the spiritual battle. God has his people all over the world. And it's just a small estimation of those on the earth now compared to what it's going to be when this takes place. We see that it's the voice from the throne possibly is one of an angel. And all of God's servants, point B, are commanded to praise God for his judgment. And those that are commanded are, number one, they that fear him. The ones who revere and stand in awe of God. Two, they are small and great. In other words, all of God's servants, no matter what their position is in God's kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that in God's kingdom that they're in all in heaven. It's God's kingdom. God's kingdom is here on the earth. We're part of God's kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. So we are in this kingdom. And all those who are fearing him are commanded to praise the Lord. And it's due, as we see in verse 6, to the fact that God is the ultimate victor and ruler. God, the omnipotent one, reigns. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And we get a hint right off the bat as who this bride is, because it says the fine linen in which the bride is arrayed is the righteousness of the saints. So let's look first of all at those who make up this marriage party. The first one is the groom, point one, and that is the Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the central figure of this marriage. It's all about his marriage. It's not about the bride, it's about him. Secondly, the bride is the New Testament church. 
the church from Acts chapter 2 until the Lord raptures out the church. That's the bride. They say, well, why does God just choose to make the church the bride? You'll have to ask God when you get to heaven. I don't really mind, to be honest with you, you know, because I'm part of the bride. So I rejoice in that. I don't need to know why he didn't take the Old Testament saints into this and the tribulation saints into this. I let God figure all that out. But we find that Christ died for all who believe in him. And that's the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the tribulation saints. All of them had to put their faith in the Messiah that was coming or the Messiah who has come. But here is an event that indicates it's strictly for the church. We see that point A, it's composed of the whole regenerated people from Pentecost to the first resurrection, as described in 1 Corinthians 15. B, those united together with Christ by baptism with the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. C, the body of Christ, which of which he is the head, Ephesians 1. It is the holy temple for the inhabitation of God through the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2. E, it's one flesh with Christ, Ephesians 5, and the reference change, verse 30 through 33. And F, given in marriage to Christ as a chaste bride to one husband. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2. Change that reference also. You can look those up later. Now, let's look at some marriage customs of the ancient Middle East. A marriage contract was drawn up by the parents often when the children were small. A payment of a dowry was often the feature of this contract. The payment of the dowry, God's payment of the dowry was Calvary. He paid the price so that he might have the bride. Secondly, at a suitable age, the bridegroom, accompanied by friends, would go to the house of the bride and escort her from her home And that is the rapture of the church where the groom will come and take us from our home. Then, when that happened, the bridegroom would take his bride to his house and the marriage supper would occur to which the guests were invited. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The place of the marriage of the Lamb is heaven the Father's house, the bride's clothing in verse number eight. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. She's dressed in fine linen, clean and white. The idea of clean and white represents the righteousness of the saints. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter five. Verse 26, let's go back and get the context. Wives, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I think of this as the marriage, 
He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, righteousness, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. When this bride is presented to Christ and he receives that bride, it will be completely righteous. Now, what we have here in Ephesians 5 is sanctification now. God's going through the process of changing us to become more like Christ so that he can be the first one among many that are adopted into this family. Then we have Romans chapter 8. I'll miss that one and go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, all because the Father bestowed his love on us. And because of what the Father did, we are now the children of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him and are presented to him, we will be clean and white because God will make it so. So go back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 8 again. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Meaning the bride didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. But it's a decision that God made to make it so. And that's reason for you and me to rejoice over the salvation that we have now, what God is doing in our lives now and sanctifying us. And the day when we will be in his presence, sinless, sinless. We will be changed and there will be no contamination about us at all. We will be clean and white. We will be righteous as Jesus is righteous. So that is, first of all, in Ephesians, sanctification now. And point B, glorification later. This is what God is in the process of doing, and he will bring it to completion. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Not that we have created our own righteousness, but what God has done in making us righteous. A miraculous work of Almighty God. And we can rejoice that we have that to look forward to. There's coming a day when we will measure up because God will have changed us 
And we ought to look forward to that day. The day where you struggle with sin and have challenges and difficulties in your life because of the, the battle against sin. Rejoice, there's a better day coming. In the sweet by and by. Now we see point E, the preparation for the wedding. We saw some of the custom of an ancient Middle East wedding. We see the bridegroom going for his bride, the place of the wedding, the garment of the wedding, and then the preparation for the wedding. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. I want you to look at what God's doing in us. It's not what we're doing, it's what God's doing. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. 1 Peter 1, 23-2-3. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that it, by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord's good. Second Peter 1, 3-9. His divine power has given us, you get it? His divine power has given us. It's not a matter, you're going to get it, hope I have it, you have it. Has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you might share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless and unfaithful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So God's intention is for you and me to be getting ready for the wedding. If you remember back to when you got married, most of us were planning our wedding and doing the things necessary. If you were real young then, it wasn't a problem. You didn't have to lose a few pounds. You know, you know. when I got married, I didn't lose, need to lose any weight. But, you know, we're getting ready. Taking the necessary steps so that when the wedding happens, we're ready for it. And it happens without any hitches. And we have a wonderful day together 
in our marriage ceremony. And that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. Why do we live the way we live? Because we're getting ready for the marriage. We're getting ready for the day when we will be brought in to the presence of our Savior as his bride. Oh yes, we will be clean and white at that time. But it's far better that we get prepared for it and are ready for it. Because the more we prepare ourselves, the more excited we get about it. And the more we look and think upon the one that we're going to marry. And so there's a preparation that takes place. Our preparing ourselves through the word of God. This last passage, 1 Peter, talks about the knowledge that comes from the word. So that we might know what we ought to be doing and then do it. Preparation for the wedding. Then we see verse 9 and 10. The blessing for those who are called to the wedding, the marriage supper. And he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see thou do it not. I am thy servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this one sharing with John about this, which seems to be an angel, said, write it. Record it for posterity. Record these statements so that all can read and know what will take place. Folks, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. We don't need to doubt it or worry about it. It's going to happen. Marriage day is coming. When we as a body will be brought in, complete, a completed body of Christ, and we will marry our Savior through this ceremony. And we will be at this marriage feast, this supper of the Lamb. It says, right, blessed, happy because they're receiving the favor of God. I'm going to be happy about this. Blessed are they which are called. Those whom God has chosen. Those who are in, who are there because of God's mercy and grace, not because of their merit. Blessed are they which are called. The word called is invited to be a part of it. Jesus gives us illustrations, remember over in the Gospels, of the marriage that was prepared, the, the, the meal that was prepared, and everybody was invited. Nobody got there without an invitation. Many were invited and many rejected. So there has to be an invitation. You don't get there because you decide to go on your own. And blessed are the ones who are invited. Invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's the idea of in keeping with the Eastern practice found in point 4b. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His official marriage celebration with His bride, the church. Think about that for a moment. You know, God's busy. He's busy. I know He just speaks things into existence. He's totally in control. But He's busy. He's running the universe. And He takes away from His busy schedule 
to arrange this special ceremony. Don't ever doubt how important you are to God. You are his child. He loves you with an everlasting love that will never, ever fade or go away. Don't let the devil jump up on your shoulder and tell you you're not important to God. Well, I don't have anything to offer. It doesn't matter. God doesn't accept you because of what you have to offer. God accepted you because of you. I choose you. I invite you to be my child. It wasn't you had to meet a certain criteria. All you had to be was a sinner. And all of us qualified there. And all we had to do was believe. What a wonderful, wonderful thought that is that we are going to be a part of this official celebration that God has set aside just for us. And in verse 9, we have the confirmation and publication. These are, the record John has just written, the true sayings of God, meaning it will happen exactly as recorded because God gave it to John. And then John's amazement. I mean, it, I don't know how I'd reacted to all this. I mean, think of all that John has seen and heard through the writing of this book. I mean, it, it has to be overwhelming. Many of the things he's written are just incomprehensible. Now he comes to this final wonderful event and he reads about it and he just looks at the one who's told him and this, this, this person is worthy of my praise. So in his amazement at the wonderful news, he fell in worship. But the one who gave him this information said, don't go there. Don't do that. The declaration of the one giving John the information, he says, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I know there's a whole lot could be said about that verse, but it would be all speculation, so I'm not going to go there. I'll let you read the commentators what they have to say about fellow servant of thy brethren having the testimony of Jesus. I'll let you figure all that out and you make your own choices. It's not important to me. What's important to me, there's a marriage coming and there's a feast coming. I like marriages and I like to eat. And that'll be the day where I can sit down and eat and have no regrets for what I eat. It's going to be a great day. We serve a great God, and we can rejoice. And folks, it's just going to get better. It's going to get better from here on out in the book. It just gets better. God's getting ready to wrap things up, and it's going to be exciting. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy, for your word, the hope it gives us, the truth that's found in it. And I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would bring to our mind often through this week the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll meditate on that. We'll just think about it. Mull it around in our mind. Just try to imagine in our mind what the event's going to be like. We've been to several marriages. We've sat down at meals that are prepared after the marriages. And they've been great. 
People try to do it right. But Lord, when this marriage feast takes place, it will be perfect. It'll be as nothing we have ever experienced and nothing we could ever imagine. We look forward to that day and we'll say as John did when he wrapped up the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. Take us home to be with you. Dismiss us with your blessings. Protect us through this week. Only you know what we will encounter or face. Help us to be prepared because we are in a right relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.